Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, first off, let me wish everybody a happy Constitution Day. Uh, today is actually uh, the Constitution Day itself. The uh, Constitution was, sound, was signed by our founding fathers back in uh, 1787 on this day, September 17th. So we're uh, very pleased to be celebrating it at, at uh, the Cato Institute. In fact, yesterday we did an all-day conference uh, talking about constitutional issues, the Supreme Court, and a lot of other uh, legal issues. Uh, we also uh, witnessed in the, the House of Representatives, I believe, the uh, passage of a resolution celebrating Constitution Day, which was, which was nice to see. I believe Congressman Lata uh, uh, introduced that, and it, I think it passed unanimously. Now, is that binding? Does that mean they now have to follow the Constitution? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a non-binding resolution, as I understand it. Uh, but maybe that's something that... <laughs> a fair point. Uh, well, uh, maybe, maybe it's a, an area where they can improve upon, I suppose. Uh, so, uh, and besides that, of course, today we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court. We're going to be talking a little bit about the constitutional protections of economic liberty. And we have an excellent panel that's uh, already chiming in, as you've, as you've noticed, uh, <laughs> as they're uh, absolutely raring to go. So I guess I'll just go ahead and introduce our, our first speaker with that. Uh, First up will be Tim Sandifer. He is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, as well as the principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation in California. If you're not familiar with the Pacific Legal Foundation, they're an excellent organization out there. They've been around since 1973, making them the oldest and uh, most successful public interest legal organization that fights for limited government, property rights, individual rights, and a balanced approach to environmental protection. Uh, Tim is a lead attorney in the Foundation's Economic Liberty Project there, where he works to protect businesses against abuse of government regulation. Uh, he's also worked extensively on eminent domain uh, as it pertains uh, in particular to the, the, the Kilo case, though, uh, though much more broadly than that. Uh, he actually authored a book a couple years ago for the Cato Institute uh, called The Cornerstone of Economic Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century America. Uh, he also has authored a, a brand new book called The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law. Uh, he's an adjunct professor of law at the, George, uh, I'm sorry, at the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, and he is a graduate of uh, Chapman University School of Law in Hillsdale College. And with that, I'll turn things over to Tim. Thank you very much. I hope uh, those of you who are interested in this will join us on Monday. We're going to be doing an event about the book uh, at noon down at the Cato Institute, so I hope you'll uh, join us for that. And those of you who want some more information about Pacific Legal Foundation and the work that we do, I brought some, uh, some brochures and stuff about our, uh, about our litigation in defense of private property rights and economic liberty. Um, let me tell you first about a case that I filed about three weeks ago in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I'm representing a man named Mike Muni, who runs a moving company. He's been in the moving business since he was 16 years old. He runs a company called ABC Quality Movers, and he's been, uh, he's been running this company for several years. Well, unfortunately, it turns out that you need a license to do this, and to get that license, you first have to get permission from all of the existing moving companies. Uh, that's right. When you file your application for uh, to run a moving business, the Missouri Department of Transportation notifies all the existing moving companies and gives them the opportunity to object to you having a license to run a moving company. And when they object, you have to go in front of a board of bureaucrats and convince them that there needs to be a new moving company. How do you do that? 
How do you convince a group of bureaucrats that there needs to be a new business? Of course, it's impossible, right? If you had said what in the early 90s, if you, had, if you were Mr. Starbuck and you had said, I, I want to start a new, a new coffee shop, and you had been forced to prove to the world that there needed to be a new coffee shop, <laughs> it wouldn't have been possible. There are plenty of coffee shops, right? The only way to really try to, to, to prove that there needs to be a new business is to try it. Nevertheless, under the uh, current law, you have to first prove to this group of bureaucrats through what evidentiary standards we don't know, through what procedures we don't know, that they ought to give you permission to run a business to support yourself and your family. Now, the problem with this case, of course, is we, we filed this lawsuit. We argue that it violates the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which says that no state may deprive any person of the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Among those privileges or immunities are, of course, the right to earn a living, a right that was respected and protected by English and American courts as far back as, well, the oldest case I found was 1348. Um, but the most famous of the early cases came in the early 17th century. In 1602, there was a case called the Case of the Monopolies, uh, where what happened was that Mr. Darcy owned a monopoly on the making and selling of playing cards. It was given to him by Queen Elizabeth. And... Uh, Mr. Uh, Allen went and made and sold some playing cards, and he was brought up on charges for violating this royal monopoly. And the English version of the Supreme Court struck this monopoly down as a violation of the law of the land provision of the Magna Carta. Uh, the, the law of the land provision says you may not be deprived of liberty except by the law of the land. What that means is except by some reasonable rule that applies to everybody equally and protects the general public. In other words, not through an arbitrary whim of government, not just because the government decided to give you a privilege or to deny you a right. And that provision, the law of the land provision, was written into American constitutions. It was often uh, used synonymously with the phrase due process of law, which we find in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. One of my favorite of the early cases is the case of the upholsterers. In the case of the upholsterers, what happened was there's an upholstery guild in England, and you could not practice the trade of upholstery without first getting a license as an upholsterer. And this guy wanted to go into business making, uh, you know, doing the upholstery business, and he was brought up on charges for this. And this case was, was heard by one of, in fact, I think the greatest lawyer of all time, Sir Edward Cook. And Sir Edward Cook uh, said to the upholsterers, well, why do you have this rule? And, of course, they said what every trade, trade group says, right? They said it protects the general public. The safety of the public depends on us making sure that people who practice upholstery are properly licensed. Why, you might sit down in a chair and it wouldn't be properly upholstered. You might scratch yourself on tax or something, right? And Lord Cook said, this is ridiculous. He said, no skill there is in this, for a man might learn it in six hours, and one of my favorite lines, he said, if somebody is bad at the upholstery business, he said, unskillfulness is sufficient punishment. Right? If you're a bad upholsterer, customers won't shop from you. And that was the attitude that English and American courts had adopted from that time on. Lord Cook actually became very influential. He wrote the textbook, which all early American lawyers read, the Institutes of the Common Law. And he put in there that the, the fact that the common law of England prevented the government from restricting your economic freedom for irrational reasons, for no reason, or simply to grant economic privileges to people that they liked. This is one of the privileges or immunities of American citizenship that it was supposed to be protected by the 14th Amendment. But as I'm sure you all heard from earlier this year, that clause, the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, was essentially erased from the Constitution in 1873 
in the slaughterhouse cases and has basically never been enforced since. Instead, what we have now is we have what's called the rational basis test. So I'm going fi to file this lawsuit in defense of this moving company, right? I get what the, from the court, I, I file this case, I say this violates the Constitution. They apply, the court will apply what they call rational basis scrutiny. Uh, does anybody in here know what the phrase is? Any lawyers or any law students? What is rational basis scrutiny? Yeah. Okay, and what's the phrase? Ra yeah, what's the definition? Of the I'll give you the first word. Rationally. Exactly. Rationally related to a legitimate government interest. Okay, so if the law is rationally related to a legitimate government interest, it's constitutional. Now, here's the real question. What is a legitimate state interest? Everything, right? Everything, nothing, nobody knows. In 1987, in Nolan v. California Coastal Commission, the Supreme Court of the United States said, our cases have not laid out the standards for determining what constitutes a legitimate government interest. 1987, 200 years after the Constitution of the United States, we don't know what government exists to do. And if you don't know what a legitimate state interest is, how do you know whether or not something is rationally related to it? So what you end up getting under the rational basis test is government always wins. That's what you get. Government always wins under the rational basis test, and that is the standard that's applied to economic liberty and private property rights with no constitutional warrant whatsoever. There is no foundation for the rational basis test in the Constitution of the United States, in the words of the framers, in the Federalist Papers, anything like that. The rational basis test was invented in 1934 in a case called Nebia versus New York. And when I, I love talking about Nebia because it was such a stupid case. So, 1934, right? The depths of the Great Depression. Unemployment is like 25%, right? And, and if you're running the government of New York and you want to solve this problem, you know, they've got soup kitchens and bread lines and all this, what, solve the, it's obvious what you have to do to fix this situation, right? You have to make food more expensive. <laughs> Duh. So the state of New York passes a law making it illegal to charge less than eight cents a quart for milk. And Mr. Nebbia, a Rochester grocery store owner, sold milk for lower than this price, and he was brought up on charges for it. And he went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he said, I have the right to sell what I want for whatever I want. And the Supreme Court said, no, if the government wants to deprive you of your economic freedom, it can do anything it wants to. Now, there are some restrictions on that. Four years later, the court suggested that there would be a higher standard that would apply in some other cases. And nowadays, you get a higher standard of scrutiny. You get the strict scrutiny standard when the law involves certain other kinds of rights. But to this day, economic liberty and private property rights get the anything-goes rational basis standard that has no foundation in the Constitution of the United States. And this idea, this rational basis idea, was invented by the progressive movement. It was devised by progressive intellectuals beginning, of course, the progressive movement is kind of a hazy historical period, but it began somewhere around the 1880s. And this, this was a group of intellectuals who had these radical new ideas for how American constitutionalism ought to work. They had four big ideas. The first one was rights are just permissions. Right? The American founders thought we all have rights because we're human beings. We're entitled to these rights because we are who we are. No government may justly deprive us of these rights. But no, the, the progressives' rights were permissions government gives you for society's own reasons. This, this, of course, is prevailing orthodoxy in America's law schools today. The second great progressive idea was government exists to make society nice. 
Not what, the, not what the founders thought, right? Thomas Jefferson says, The sum of good government is one which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall otherwise leave them free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. Right? The Declaration of Independence says, Government exists to secure our rights. But no, the progressives, they, they had these great new ideas. Government is like a gardener. And it goes around and it shapes and molds society. It, it waters some parts of the economy and clips other parts. And it makes society nice. And so they came up with these great new government ideas for, for controlling how the, how the world works. Uh, eugenics, segregation, the income tax, prohibition, the use of eminent domain for redevelopment. That was a progressive idea. So that's a great, second great progressive idea. Government exists to make society nice. The third great progressive idea is judicial restraint. Unfortunately, a lot of my conservative friends have adopted this idea. The, the judicial restraint means when the government decides to deprive you of your freedom, the courts should do nothing about it. I always say that's why Lady Justice is blindfolded. She's applying rational basis scrutiny. She's like, well, I don't care, whatever, right? That's judicial restraint. The great, greatest monuments of judicial restraint, Kelo versus New London, right? Court's not going to be activists. We're going to stand back and let the legislature steal your property, right? Buck versus Bell, in which the Supreme Court said it was okay for states to force women to undergo sterilization operations against their consent. Right? Court said, meh, we're not going to do anything about it. So that's the third great progressive idea. The fourth great progressive idea was the living constitution. Constitution means different things at different times. Whatever government elites want today is what the constitution means. So those are the great progressive ideas. And they, at first, they were in dissenting opinions. They weren't really prevailing ideas until the Nebia case and the rational basis test that that, that case implemented made that constitutional law. And those things are now how the American Constitution works. So when I go to court with my, with my moving case, I'm stuck with this rational basis scrutiny that says government exists to, to take away Mr. Muni's individual right. He doesn't even have a right to earn a living. It's a privilege that government exists to give him or take away to meet the changing needs of the elites who run the government. And who are those elites? Well, of course, they're the politically, the politically well-connected existing moving companies. Right? They're, the, they're the, the people who operate the businesses, who have the political influence to stifle competition through these licensing restrictions and other limitations. These certificate of necessity requirements, that's what they're technically called. These certificate of necessity requirements are how every major metropolitan area in the country regulates the taxicab industry. Right? Who is hurt by that? When I, I, I talk about this in the first chapter of my book. I, it, I, about 10 years ago, did a research memo about uh, taxicabs in Miami. And at that time, getting a license to operate a single taxicab in Miami cost $15,000. And it's got to be more than that now. I know it's 50000 or so in New York City. Now, who's driving taxis? It's not rich white guys, right? And, and when immigrants or, member, or, or residents of the inner city want to start up a taxi company, they can't just take their car and paint the word taxi on it and start driving people around for, for fair payment, which ought to be the rule. Instead, what they have to do is they have to go get this license or they have to rent the license from the three or four families that own all the licenses, and they lease the, these licenses at such a high rate, $500, $600 a week, that they have to work from Sunday until Thursday to pay for their license, and then they can keep the rest of the, of the money in order to provide for themselves and their families. The people who are hurt most by these economic restrictions are the poor and members of minority groups who don't have the political influence to convince the government to respect their rights. That's why we have a constitution. The, re the reason we have a constitution is to protect us from democracy. 
not to foster democracy and, enc- and encourage government decision making. Right. I can't afford the time and energy to go down to the city council every day and say, please don't steal my house and give it to Costco. Right. And then the next day, go down, please don't steal my house and give it to Costco. And then the next day, please don't steal my house and give it. Right. I can't afford to do that. I've got a family to care about. I got a business to run. I got all this stuff to do. Right. So instead, what I do is I write a document. And in this document, I say the city council may not steal my house and give it to Costco. That's called the Constitution of the United States. It exists so that we don't have to persuade the government to respect our rights. So these licensing laws and other restrictions harm the poor and those who lack political influence the most. And one of the things I wish, to, I, wish I could convince liberals of this point, no matter how beneficial you think your government program is going to be, if government has the power to redistribute wealth and opportunity... That power is going to fall into the hands of the most politically adept, not into the hands of the most morally deserving, right? The power to redistribute wealth and opportunity is worth a lot of money. And those businesses and existing uh, uh, companies that have political wherewithal are going to invest money in getting control over that power. I can't get control of that power. But, but large uh, companies that, that donate a lot of money to politicians, they can get that kind of influence. And so they implement these laws to restrict economic opportunities. So the, the big issue in my moving case and in a lot of the economic liberty cases that I talk about in the book is, is protectionism a legitimate government interest? Should the government be using its licensing laws and other restrictions in order to protect established companies against competition from upstart entrepreneurs? And there's three cases on this right now that show a circuit split, which means that it will ultimately have to be resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court. There was a case in the Sixth Circuit called Craig Miles. If you wanted to sell a coffin in Tennessee, you had to be a licensed funeral director. You had to to spend two years learning how to embalm bodies and all this sort of thing. All you want to do is sell a coffin. You're not officiating at funerals. You're just selling a box. And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said that was irrational and unconstitutional because the law was simply protecting established funeral directors against competition from people who wanted to sell cheaper coffins. Then the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a decision called Powers versus Harris. Same facts. Coffin sellers, licensing law. And the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals said government can use its licensing laws simply to protect established businesses against fair competition, even if the law has no connection at all to protecting the general public. The worst economic liberty decision since the New Deal. And then the third case is a case I litigated called Merrifield. My client, Alan Merrifield, a nice old uh, guy runs a, a, a pest control company, puts spikes on buildings to keep pigeons from landing on them. In California, you had to spend two years studying how to use pesticides and then take a 200-question multiple-choice examination testing your knowledge of pesticides before you could do this business. He didn't use pesticides. He didn't believe in pesticides. He put spikes on buildings. And it gets better because the law only applied if you were dealing with pigeons. If you put the same spikes on the same building to keep seagulls off of it, you didn't need any license at all. So I said to the state's expert witness in deposition, I said, this law doesn't require this license for, de- for doing the same thing if it affects pi- seagulls instead of pigeons. He said, that's right. I said, would you say that's irrational? He said, yes, I would. <laughs> and the government lawyer says, can we take a break? <laughs> he comes back from the break. He says, see, they were going to get rid of the licensing law 
for people who didn't use pesticides. And those of us who already had licenses, we didn't want to face fair competition from new companies. So we went to the legislature and we said, could you divide up the market? And, and, and since pigeons are the most common pest bird, we'll keep those. And these other guys, they can deal with whatever. Right. It was, I, so I went to the trial court. I said, it is an undisputed fact in this case that this law only protects established companies against fair competition. And I still lost because of the rational basis test. Now, I'm glad to say we got that case reversed. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned that case and said you can't, states cannot use their licensing laws simply to protect established companies against fair competition. But, now, but we still have this split between the Sixth and Ninth Circuit on one hand and the Tenth Circuit. That will ultimately have to be resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court. It will not be resolved this term because no case uh, on that issue has been granted certiorari or is likely to anytime soon. Very quickly, um, I, I will talk about the case that was decided earlier this year, McDonald versus Chicago, which was on the question of whether, well, it was on, it was the gun rights case, but it was on the question of whether to revive the privileges or immunities clause. Something to oh, talk about I will, I will. Uh, and it did not do so. It did not do so. It, it said we're not going to address that issue. And as a result, we're stuck arguing these other legal theories. Um, in, in cases like my moving case. But if that, were to do, if that were to change, if the Supreme Court were to revive the Privileges or Immunities Clause, we would have a much stronger basis for protecting uh, economic liberties. Economic freedom means the right of economic choice. It means the right to make decisions about your economic future, the right to decide what jobs to take, what hours to work, what wages to earn, what vacation time to ask for from your employer. Government at the state, federal, and local levels violates this right in every conceivable way, every minute of every day, with no rational basis, and gets away with it time and time and time again because courts insist on looking the other way. Today, federal officials even decide what kind of chairs you can sit in in the workplace. There's nothing in the Constitution of the United States to that effect. So when I talk about economic liberty, it, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the time people say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't be asking courts to do this stuff. You should be going down and, and voting the bums out if you don't like economic policy. One thing that that totally ignores is that these laws are not written by elected officials. Most of the laws that affect your daily lives are written by unelected government bureaucrats who often can't even be fired. <laughs> Right? They work for these agencies that only have uh, more or less control by elected officials, and yet we're told that we should resort to the political process for the protection of economic freedom. Imagine that somebody said, oh, well, you have to resort to the political process for the protection of your freedom of speech. Of course not. Right? When we take rights seriously, we protect them against the legislature. And what I'm telling you is economic liberty should be taken seriously. It is a right deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. And I think it is time for Congress to enact a new civil rights law that says explicitly economic liberty is an American civil right. It is a fundamental human right to run a business in a common occupation without unreasonable government interference. And courts should respect this right. So that's the thesis of my book, and that's what I came here to say, and I'd be happy to answer any questions afterward. Great stuff, Tim. Uh, again, the name of the book is The Right to Earn a Living, and we do have a few copies of this, I think, at the registration table, so if you're interested in checking it out, uh, you can see uh, Rachel or uh, Kurt Couchman here, my colleague, uh, 
we'll get you a copy. Uh, we also have a few copies of another brand new publication from the Cato Institute, the Cato Supreme Court Review. This is an annual publication we put out, kind of summarizes what happened in the Supreme Court over the last term. Uh, so obviously a lot of really hot issues uh, went down this year. Uh, Tim mentioned, and, and Ilya will talk about in more detail, the McDonald case, the gun rights case. Uh, there was also the, uh, the Citizens United case, uh, which dealt with political speech and a lot of other great stuff in there. So uh, pick up a copy and check it out. Um, uh, our next speaker is, in fact, the, the editor of the, uh, the Supreme Court Review, as well as a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato. Uh, he uh, has a very impressive title, a uh, very impressive resume here. Uh, not, not so much on the title, but uh, very impressive on the... Uh, on the resume, resume front, with a, with a bachelor's degree from Princeton, a master's degree from London School of Economics, and a JD from University of Chicago Law School. But most impressively of all, I think, was uh, his appearance on the Colbert Report uh, a few months back, uh, where he, I think he's a bit of a squish, I must say. He, uh, he admitted that, that we do not have the right to personal rocket launchers on the show. Uh, controversial opinion in the halls of Cato, but we won't get into that today. <laughs> Uh, with that, I'll just turn things over to, to Ilya Shapiro, a man who lives every day like it's Constitution Day. Uh, well, thanks, Brandon, for that most original introduction. Um, I, I'm hoping later to uh, hear from Tim what he really thinks about economic liberty. Uh, you know, I thought it was kind of, uh, you know, not 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 really passionate about the, about this topic. Next time, we'll 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 find a topic for him that that he really cares about. Uh, Constitution Day, indeed. I, I do live it. Uh, I believe in this document. Um, the Cato Constitution, by the way, uh, you, you, you buy the Constitution, you get the Declaration of Independence for free, so it's a really good deal. Um, and, you know, uh, I read it uh, cover to cover. It's not very long. It's not like Brazil or Venezuela. It's like 500 pages or something that they ratify before they even finish writing it. Um, you know, at least once a year, I, I read it cover to cover. And it's an important exercise. Uh, I remember the very first time I read it, uh, I think I was 10 or 12 or something, uh, and I was kind of a weird kid because this is in, in, in Canada where I was growing up and I was fascinated with American history because uh, it seemed like Canada was a little squishy, so you know, America has the, the real stuff. Uh, at least according to the Constitution, because like, oh, this is great. Limited powers, government can't do more than this. Unlimited rights, that sounds fantastic. And then I started learning about what actually happens, well, here in Congress. I'm like, well, how does that square? Um... And, and you know what? It's because we as citizens have failed. You know, the price of liberty, as Jefferson said, is eternal vigilance. And we drop the ball at some point. You know, you can't just blame politicians or activist judges or, or you know, uh, overreaching presidents or what have you, uh, 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 faceless agencies that are unaccountable. Ultimately, that comes from us. You know, if we stop caring about it, if we start caring more about getting goodies and pork and all that, rather than uh, policing our liberties and making sure that the government that's supposed to work for us actually does that, that we commandeer the government and the government doesn't commandeer us, you know, see the individual mandates, see the uh, cap and trade, see uh, endless bailouts and stimulus and all of this. You know, we think that's great, but what does it mean? It, it, all of that decreases our liberty. Somehow we've lost track of that. Um, you know, on Constitution Day, uh, by federal statute, every educational institution in the country has to teach something about the Constitution. I mean, I, I kind of uh, shiver at the thought of what some uh, 
teach about that, how it's, you know, I think there was a there was a poll, you know, Americans revere their constitution, but something like 37 percent of the people in some polls like jaywalking thought that uh, 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 the phrase uh, to each according to his need from each according to his ability was part of the constitution. You know, the the central organizing principle of Marx's Das Kapital. I mean, like people think that the, it's, it's like Barack Obama's election campaign, kind of a, you project onto it what you think is uh, is what you want and you don't really think through the consequences. But anyhow, uh, on this day, I hope that at least everyone in this room uh, and those who you work with and for uh, will take some time to, to really understand and think about and read uh, what this document means. We at Cato celebrate, as, as Brandon has said, by releasing now the ninth annual Supreme Court Review. This is a great volume uh, this year. We have articles by Richard Epstein, uh, Alan Gura uh, on the McDonald case. I co-wrote that w- with him and, and Josh Blackman. Judge Michael McConnell, uh, who's now at Stanford Law School, a, a fantastic intellectual in this country, uh, a leading campaign finance practitioner, Jim Bopp, Harvey Silverglate, one of the best civil libertarians. I mean, Nadine Strawson, the former head of the ACLU. I mean, this is, this is I'm very proud of, of this issue in, in particular. And you can, uh, in, in a couple of months, you can, you can buy it now on Cato's website or Amazon.com. Uh, in a few months, you'll be able to download individual uh, PDFs of the article as well. And then we had our, our conference uh, where we released this and talking and talked about the, uh, the term that's coming yesterday. But uh, let's step back again uh, to first principles and why it's so important to think about the Constitution. You know, why do we have the Constitution? Is it just being pedantic, you know, trot something out? It's like, you know, the founding relics of an ancient civilization. Yes, we honor them, you know, in the breach or something. Uh, well, look, it comes down to political science 101. You don't have to go to law school. You don't have to study this stuff. You don't have to be a you know, professional you know, pundit or anything like this. Uh, it, it, uh, it goes to those eternal questions of who governs and to what end. How do you organize your society, right? In the, in the original position or in the state of nature, to kind of mix uh, political philosophy metaphors, um, you know, life is nasty, brutish, and short, and, you know, we need to figure out some way of defending ourselves and, uh, you know, growing and, and, and having prosperity and um, uh, uh, supporting our families and all of that. Well, how do we do that? By getting together into, into groups uh, and delegating some of our own individual sovereignty, some of our own individual powers to a government. And we give that government certain, we delegate to that government certain enumerated powers. Because we delegate only certain enumerated powers, those powers are necessarily limited. Everything else we retain. And rights are just the flip side of that. I mean, it's not, you don't think think of powers over here and rights over here. They're two sides of the same coin. Uh, We have a sea of liberty with islands of government power to kind of police the rules of the game, provide for national defense, and not much more. Because the more you get into what government does, the less legitimacy it has, which means the less people support it, whether you think about it as implied consent, whether you think of some sophisticated uh, political science uh, uh, background for that in terms of uh, you know, maximally protecting the rights of minorities. But you know, the, the more the government does, the less legitimate its action becomes for that reason, because uh, less and less does each person delegate uh, that particular individual bit of their sovereignty uh, to, to the government sovereign. Okay, so when the Constitution was was framed, um, we have the original Constitution before the amendments that gives government its powers, and that's it. You know, people ask, you know, what kind of, you know, shouldn't we have a balanced budget amendment or like an amendment to to uh, uh, you know make clear what the Commerce Clause means? I mean, like this wasn't an issue until until the Progressive Era. But if we need to have uh, 
a constitutional amendment. Maybe, how about this, uh, and we mean it. Every section of the Constitution will now have at the end, and we mean it. I mean, that, I mean, you follow this thing. You don't, you don't need to amend it to check government further. It's all here. But you know what? We already have two and we mean it provisions in the Constitution. Look at your Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Okay? On the power side, we have the Tenth Amendment, which says, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Okay, that's it. That's the and we mean it. Those powers that we listed in Articles 1, 2, and 3, that's it. That's all you get, federal government. You know, we, uh, we the people get the rest. And on the right side, look at the Ninth Amendment. You know, it's not just the first eight amendments, free speech and, and uh, the right to keep and bear arms, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that we have. Uh, there was a big debate about whether even to have a Bill of Rights, not because the framers didn't think we ought to have rights, but because they thought uh, we don't give government any powers to violate our rights. And indeed, if we start enumerating those rights, then people will start thinking that we have those rights only. And government will start thinking, oh, well, we can do everything other than, you know, censor people or take away their guns. Um, it's turned out that way because of the various historical uh, unfortunate things, again, on the right side as on the power side. But look at the Ninth Amendment, the as we mean it vis-a-vis -vis rights provision. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. There you go. I, I, you know, people ask me, what do I need to know about the Constitution? What do I need to tell my fifth grader, my eighth grader, what have you? Read the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. I mean, read the whole thing. But the Ninth and Tenth Amendment is really all you need to know. Um, it's so simple. You know, we don't run on the French or the Brazilian system where, you know, you, everything that's not uh, expressly permitted is prohibited. It's the other way around. Uh, we, um, and we went wrong in, uh, historically in lots of different ways. First, Tim mentioned the slaughterhouse cases, which eviscerated the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the, the gem, the key of the 14th Amendment, which was, of course, the completion or the perfection of the Constitution. You know, we fought a civil war. Why? Over slavery, yes. But slavery is just the most notable part of a, of a greater problem with the original structure of the Constitution. And that is, while defending against federal tyranny, it allowed state tyranny. And not just slavery, but the state could censor you. The state could take away your guns. The state could uh, force you to quarter soldiers uh, and all the rest of it. Um, it wasn't until we had the Reconstruction Era Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, that the uh, guarantees, the constitutional rights guarantees, uh, began to apply as against the states. You could now uh, sue in federal court if the state was violating your constitutional rights. And again, not just the, uh, you know, the, the, the first eight amendments. Um, that, you know, the, the, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the 14th Amendment, protects both more and less than that. Because the first eight amendments are, are mere enumeration, an example of the various other natural rights that we possess, per the Ninth Amendment that I just read. The 14th Amendment functions structurally, uh, similarly. If you read the debates by the framers, and you know, when, you, when you think about our fundamental rights as applied to the states, you really have to think about the framers of the 14th Amendment, people like Representative John Bingham and Senator Jacob Howard, listen to their, read their speeches, and they talk about natural rights. They say we can't enumerate everything. That's ridiculous. We have infinite rights. You know, it's not enumerated that I have the right to wear a hat, but I do have that constitutional right. Um, and so, unfortunately, privileges or immunities, which is 19th century speak for natural rights, was written out of the Constitution uh, for most intents and purposes. Um, and uh, the federal government, uh, the federal courts stopped or, or didn't uh, protect 
against state oppressions until the Supreme Court started what's called selectively incorporating bits of the Bill of Rights against the states in the 1920s and 30s. And most recently, the last bit of selective incorporation was with the Second Amendment this year in the McDonald case. But note what happened in McDonald. Four judges, four justices, a, a plurality, said, okay, we're going to incorporate via substantive due process, the due process clause, which does have some substance. You know, you can't be deprived of your life, liberty, or property without due process of law, uh, but there is that due process of law, which means it can't be a kangaroo court. You have to have some substantive protections. But it doesn't mean the kitchen sink of, you know, anything that a justice thinks might be, quote, fundamental. You know, that's kind of a standardless test, and they kind of throw it in there without any constitutional, textual, or historical grounding. Privileges or immunities was meant to do that. Uh, so, but we had, uh, because we've been doing that for so long, because slaughterhouse cases have been on the books for so long, four justices uh, incorporated, applied the right to keep and bear arms against the states via the due process clause. Fortunately, um, a necessar- the necessary fifth vote provided by Justice Thomas invoked the privileges or immunities clause. And in this sense, it was good that the decision was 5-4 rather than, you know, 9 nothing to incorporate. Because I was, you know, I was kind of pessimistic about this. I thought that we would have nine votes to apply the right to keep and bear arms, but the so-called liberal justices would do the, the due process incorporation, but then say, oh, but then Chicago's gun ban still survives somehow under you know, lower scrutiny or under whatever, you know, a multi-factor Breyer balancing test or or what have you. Think of the children provision of the Constitution. Uh, And then Thomas's privileges or immunities analysis, which we knew he was going to give, would have been kind of an outlier, kind of, oh, there's that kooky Thomas trying to do his originalist thing again. How crazy. But no, instead Thomas provided the necessary fifth vote, and so you don't have five votes to extend the right to keep and bear arms to the states. Uh, to revive the Privileges and Immunities Clause without, without that vote. Uh, and that, is, that was the door opener. From now on, every uh, wise counsel arguing, like Tim, the economic liberties cases or property rights or any other type of liberty, any other type of substantive liberty, uh, will be wise to talk about not just substantive due process, but the Privileges or Immunities Clause. The right to earn a living in the ways that, that Tim has sketched out and that organizations like Pacific Legal Foundation, Institute for Justice, and so many more are doing good work to, to, um, to revive and to uh, remove the big constitutional error, not just Slaughterhouse, but uh, Caroline Product Footnote 4, the most famous footnote in all of jurisprudence and possibly all of you know, literature, uh, if, you constantly, if you think of Supreme Court opinions as literature. This said in 1937, you know, we all know about Wickard versus Filburn five years later that says that under the, under the Interstate Commerce Clause, some, Congress can somehow regulate uh, the wheat that a farmer grows in his backyard for personal consumption under the theory that if all farmers did this, that would affect uh, the price of interstate wheat. But even before that, uh, the Caroline products in this footnote said, well, there was an economic liberty case involving filled milk. I mean, you, you read these cases and it's kind of, ha ha, look at this archaic, you know, uh, hours for, for bakers and, and milk and things and wheat, uh, you know. But this is, out, out of such minutiae are born um, constitutional subversions and perversions. And in, and in this case, in footnote four said, we have different types of rights. It turns out that the enumerated rights of the Bill of Rights, as well as uh, protections for discrete and insular minorities, well, those get this strict scrutiny review, which means that government action fails if it tries to uh, affect those, infringe those rights. Uh, but then all other rights 
have uh, economic property rights, all these other things are, are second-class rights, as it were, uh, under this rational basis test, which means government can do essentially anything. Uh, and that's where, on the right side, we went wrong. Okay. I'm going to shift now, because we're, we're supposed to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term and how it, it relates to economic liberties. You now have my kind of uh, con law or constitutional theory 101 Happy to talk about any of that uh, in, in questions. Um, there's not really economic liberty cases this year, not of the kind that, uh, you know, a kilotype or, you know, there are a couple of property rights cases that we're hoping the court will take, uh, nibbling around at the edges. There's a, you know, there's business cases, you know, preemption of various types of regulations. I'm sure you don't really want to hear that much about that. I'm happy to go into it if, if you do. Uh, you know, the relationship about whether when there's a federal, big federal regulation for um, what you can advertise or national safety standards or, or what have you. Can, is that a floor, meaning can states under common law or state statute require something more, or is that a ceiling, meaning Congress, federal law, occupies the field and all state regulation is preempted? And that's a big deal under the Supremacy Clause uh, and the relationship of, of federal to states. But that's more of a, of a business issue in how you conduct um, you know, commerce. It's not uh, a fundamental economic liberty uh, as much as these types of cases that, that Tim talks about and litigates. Um, there's, there's a few big First Amendment cases, and of course First Amendment is important to economic liberties. Think about, for example, uh, in the Obamacare area, the challenge, challenges to the individual mandate and uh, Medicaid regulations and things like that. You think about that as, you know, you know, what does First Amendment have to do with that? I mean, you can see, I guess, where the economic liberty comes in, or liberty generally, you know, never before has... Uh, the federal government asserted the power to force every man, woman, and child to enter the private marketplace and buy a particular good and product. It's unprecedented, quite literally. This goes beyond, you know, regulating hotels and restaurants that, you know, you have to serve everyone regardless of race or whatever. Nobody has to be in the hotel or restaurant business. Nobody has to be in the wheat-growing business. Um, you know, if, 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 if uh, the decision not to buy insurance is economic activity that substantially affects interstate commerce, well, heck, uh, you know, we, we have a big immigration problem, and uh, to one of the parts of the comprehensive immigration reform is that we need more Americans to be gardeners and busboys. So uh, those of you on the right side of the room, you're going to be gardeners from now, and those of you on the left side are going to be busboys, because, you know, the decision to be hill staffers or to go to law school or, you know, whatever else all of you are doing, that's an economic decision that Congress can regulate for the general welfare. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little you know, beside the point here. Uh, how does this relate to free speech? Well, uh, Secretary Sebelius, the, the Secretary for Health and Human Services, two weeks ago sent a letter to insurance companies, to the insurance industry, saying, well, all of you are sending out bad vibes about how premiums are going to be increasing. I mean, of course they're going to be increasing if you're requiring companies to cover more things. I mean, uh, so uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, here's the... Uh, strong arm of the law behind my back, stop doing that misinformation campaign. We have to re-educate uh, all of your clients. I mean, it's, it's just bizarre. This is why it's all tied together. This is why you can't divorce uh, freedom of speech from economic liberty, from property rights, from, from voting rights, from any of this stuff. It's all, you know, you have one whole block of liberty. It's not these discrete islands of it, uh, you know, otherwise government reigns. So there's not really some big cases, but there are big themes to watch for. Uh, at this summer's confirmation hearings for, for uh, new justice Elena Kagan, you know, who spent 
uh, a cup of coffee as the 10th justice, the Solicitor General, before she became the 9th. She was asked, and I think the best questioner was Tom Coburn of, of Oklahoma, who's not a lawyer. I mean, you know, again, you don't have to be study this like for a living like I do. In fact, I hope both, you know, most of you are doing productive things uh, rather than having to do this stuff. You know, leave it on me to, to do this. But uh, she was asked by Tom Coburn, well, do you think uh, a, a law requiring everyone to eat uh, three servings of fruit and vegetables every day would be constitutional? And she said, well, that sounds like a dumb law. I'd vote against it, you know. But she never said, you know, well, of course that's unconstitutional. You know, both on the powers and the right side. You know, where is the government? Come on. Um, but this is the thing that we now have to litigate, and it's apparently an open question. I mean, when Nancy Pelosi was asked, uh, you know, not the line about, well, we don't know what's in it. We have to read it. We have to pass it before we know what's in it. I mean, that's bad enough. But, you know, she was asked at one point, what do you think of the constitutional challenges to Obamacare? Uh, and she said, are you serious? Because, of course, the Constitution is the last refuge of scoundrels. You know, when you don't have a real policy argument, well, then you might invoke, well, doesn't this go beyond our constitutional powers? I mean, we, we, we just have it so broken. And I hope that when the Republicans take over uh, at least the House this fall, they will have learned from their time in the wilderness uh, where they went wrong the previous time. Or else four years from now, we're going to have another sweeping uh, change, and we're going to go back and forth like this until somebody figures it out. Um, you know, the American people, thankfully, are pissed off. They're not going to take it anymore. And I'm uh, heartened that the Constitution is going to play a larger role in this fall's election than any in recent memory. You know, people are asking not just, or people are saying not just, I disagree with this policy, I disagree with this stimulus or bailout or, or what have you, but where does government get the power to do X, Y, and Z? It's a very healthy question to ask. And that's being asked by everyone from, you know, the, uh, from, from, from tea parties to, to elite talking heads. And that's good. You know, that, that's green shoots of optimism for a constitutional structure, as it were. Um, so I guess I'll end turning back to our theme of uh, Constitution Day. You know, it's, it's our duty um, to be vigilant uh, about our liberties, about the Constitution, to remember uh, that we are a government of laws, not of men. You know, it wasn't so long ago, 70 years ago isn't, isn't that long ago, really, that people understood this inherently and, and, and knew it and knew when government was acting in, in contravention to that principle. Um, you know, in, in this time of uh, endless government growth and overreach of any kind in, in any area, it's more important than ever to remember our Enlightenment roots uh, of the Constitution, of our overall governmental structure. Because ultimately, the Constitution is about citizens. It's, it's not about the Supreme Court. It's not about Congress. It's not about the president or executive agencies. It's about uh, citizens tying the hands of government. Um, I have uh, my, my, you know, th this shows, you know, why you should be out doing productive things and not like being legal pundits. Tim uh, on his uh, car has a license plate that's a U.S. reporter citation to Lochner versus New York, a quintessential economic liberty case. So I saw this, and of course, you know, we're competitive in our own quirky way. And so for my car, I got the vanity plate Fed 51, referring to Federalist Paper 51. This is the one that says, uh, most importantly, and I paraphrase James Madison here, if men were angels, uh, we wouldn't need government to rule over men. If uh, angels govern men, then we wouldn't need any checks on it, because after all, they're angels. They're, they're perfect. But uh, in a system, in, a, in the real world where men govern over men, uh, the f we first need to empower government uh, to, 
to, to set the rules of the games of the game and, and enforce our our liberties and our protections, and then set up checks so that the government doesn't get out of hand. I mean, it's it's not more complicated than that. So next time that um, you're, you're considering some rider on some omnibus bill, you know, think about: Does government have the power to do this? Is this bill on net? Uh, help or hurt our constitutional structure. And it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter who your member is or where you're from. Um, you know, that, that's, a simple, that's a simple lesson. Um, and we're all in it together on this one. So that's the lesson of Constitution Day. And I guess we have a few minutes for questions that I'm sure both Tim and I will be happy to take. Thanks.